Caught Offside with Andrew Gunling and J.J. Devaney. Oh, yes. Caught Offside. Suburbs of New York City in an apartment in Brooklyn, New York. Andrew Gunling, J.J. Devaney. The first podcast of 2022. What's up, brother? A happy new year to you, Andrew, and to all our listeners. Happy New Year, indeed. So it's 2022. I was just kind of thinking. I mean, 22. It's not a super, not a super common soccer number, but I figured I'd put the question out there. Who were some of the best 22s that you can think of? Do any strike you? Um, I think. Now the thing is, some of these guys. I, I do have a list here, but some of the some you know how soccer players change numbers relatively with relative frequency. So. Keep that right. Uh, well, I'm I'm all I can think of off the top of my head now is Kaka. That's it. Uh huh. Like that's the 22 that jumps in my mind because, you know, he was such an amazing player, and 22 was a kind of a incongruous number to have. So I'll just say Kaka, and you can read me some other ones. So for me, he's probably number one. Okay, I would say I, I think you you went and you did it. Uh, Isco, never really never really thought about Isco's number. I think about it nightly. Daily. Uh, William, oh, mostly 22. I, he said, I think, has he been, was he a 10 ever? I don't know, but he's most, I think of mostly as a 22. Um, uh, let's see. Uh, Paul Scholes had a little run as a 22. Surely when he came back, um, when he and came, when, Maria, when, when Scholes went on his hiatus, he came back with 22, right? Uh, yeah, I believe so. All right. And then um, then who was like, oh, an American JJ. Um, I would say Alexi Lawless is probably oftentimes remembered as being number 22. Would never have uh, of all the things I can remember from my youth about Lalas playing in the World Cup in 94 and, and the things he did um, for for club and country. That's not one of the things I would remember. Going back to skulls. So the website I'm looking at, JJ, it says here, this is topsoccerblog.com. This is oh, good, uh, good. You went to a really solid reference there. They said skulls is uh, he won many titles in Manchester United and proudly wore number 22 from the 95, 96 season to 2012, 2013 season. Would not have uh, imagined him doing that. Andrew. Was he 22 uh, that whole time? Why uh, do I feel like I picture him with, with other numbers? I don't, I don't know. know, but I want to tell you that this is a dreadful start to the this podcast. This has gone way. horribly wrong. I thought it would be a fun exercise of celebrating the year, um, but it's uh, it's only made us look like fools. And now we transition to the next thing in a not so subtle way. JJ, the Premier League happened. The festive period is over. Um, and when thinking back on it these last couple of weeks and just the the intense action and you you know oftentimes when we do these post festive period podcasts we think about okay who comes out of this is the big winner who comes out of this is the big loser let's start with the big winner and it, it for me it can only be one team manchester city entering this period we're in the midst of a title race now we're out of this period <laughs> and the title has been decided they won it during this festive period it's like the trophy has been handed to them um so we start with them and in one of the most i won't say one of the best matches of the weekend because that distinction will go to chelsea and liverpool which we'll get to momentarily but in one of the more interesting matches of the weekend uh it is city triumphing triumphing over arsenal 2-1 on a soul crusher of a late goal for city after arsenal fought and fought to stave them off 
they could fight no longer, though, as this one got into stoppage time. And it is Manchester City that win again, as they tend to do. Oof. I mean, I, I'm sure you agree reluctantly, JJ, that they are the uh, the winner of this period for sure. Uh, their title elect, uh, I yeah. would say, um, which is kind of depressing in and of itself. Um, I thought this was a really good game. Um, and and City, you know, Pep Guardiola said that tiredness and fatigue had a lot to do with it. Um, okay, fair enough. Uh, but uh, City did what, um, what champions do. And they ground out a, a result that really, to be honest with you, I think uh, was was desperately unfair. Actually, unfair is not the right word to use. Um, I think it was harsh on Arsenal. I felt sorry for Arsenal. I thought that was about the the ballsiest Arsenal performance I've seen in forever. Regardless of whether City were fatigued or not, I thought Arsenal were brilliant uh, most of the first half and even in the second half and even after the sending off of Gabriel, I thought Arsenal weren't overrun they didn't retreat. They actually tried to, to come out and play and attack again. Uh, I thought they were, they were excellent. And, um, and I, I, you know, I, I don't expect you to feel for the manager. No, no, I'm not that guy. You're not that guy. But, but, um, but I don't feel for them, no. Um, <laughs> I certainly thought they were... Um, I thought they were excellent. I really did. Yeah, look, I mean, feel for them, no. But, like, I don't disagree with anything you're saying. Now we can talk about some of these flashpoints when you, if you want to discuss them being, what, how did you put it? Desperately unlucky or, uh, well, I, 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 I think, I think the way, the way I look at it is this what came out of the game was uh, opprobrium, venom, spat towards Stuart Atwell's direction. And I'm not sure that is, that is entirely fair. Um, I don't think he's a great referee, nor do I think he refereed this with any serious command. He always looks a little bit flustered. Um, we've seen it before from him. Okay, but I don't think the refereeing decisions were the key decisions in the game necessarily. Uh, but we're going to have to talk about them because that's what everybody else is talking about. So well, we yeah. don't have to, but I mean... No, we should, we should. I mean, look, the, the penalty and the red card were those are turning points in this match. There's no way around it. I mean, I know sometimes I'm with you in that sometimes the referee decision talk, it's, it's, it gets boring, I guess, after a while, a little bit, right. of it. but in a match like this, where it, it's kind of, it's kind of decisive uh, in a game like this, the penalty for me, m- perhaps most of all, um, I'll tell you what, JJ, I know this is not a popular thing, but like I always say, I'm, if, I'm nothing if not honest on this podcast, and I'm not afraid to say I don't know. There's been, like you just said, lots of venom spewed at the official for this penalty um, in particular. And I've watched it a lot. And every time I watch it, I feel like I change my mind. You're talking, so if you're, so, you're talking about City's penalty, first of all. I'm talking about the penalty that Manchester that Bernardo Silva was awarded on the Granite Jaca tackle on the box. Right. Well, f- well first of all, I, I when I look at it... Um, to me, like the first time I saw it, I definitely thought it was a penalty. Um, the second time, not so sure. I feel like Silva has gone into him, but then there's a tug as well. Albeit, That's what I can't get past on the way down. And Xhaka commits the crime of dangling a leg lazily. You can't do that. I would, again, his body position is just bad. 
And he would have been better off standing out of the way and letting Silva go on. They like genuinely better off doing that and take his luck uh, that Ramsdale might force a save or that he might blast wide. Far better than doing that. So on that penalty, I, I honestly think it probably was a penalty. Now, if you if we go to the Ederson, well, hang on, hang on. Uh, well, just what do to, you mean? Be- well, before we get off of this, the, the penalty decision. I guess I just wanted to say the reason I keep going back and forth on it is because ultimately I think I agree with you. Like Granite Jaka does two things in this move that are that are potential offenses. Like you said, he keeps a leg in, and I the the grabbing of his of the shorts of Bernardo Silva. Like that's something that like it, that's easy to spot. You know, especially if it's going to go to VAR, that's an easy thing to to award a penalty for. Um, so ultimately, I think I do settle on the fact that it is a penalty and people maybe have gone a little too far in their criticism of the decision. Um, the problem is like two things can happen simultaneously. Granite Jaka can do things that are punishable offenses. Mm. Um, but at the same time, like I, I kind of I go back and forth because I don't want Bernardo Silva to be awarded for what he's doing here. Like he is probably being penalized, but he's he's gone over the top in trying to make sure that it's awarded. He goes down in a way that doesn't yeah. seem entirely natural to how he's being fouled on the play. And so sure. you, and so when you see that, you know what's happening. And so that's the problem. Like, I, I do think it's a penalty, but I also just don't love when guys are awarded for going over the top in that way. So that's why what, I've gone back and forth. Right. And so, so my, my issue then with the refereeing after that, let's just get the, uh, the Gabriel sending off out of the way. It's, it's a yellow, it's a second yellow, it's a red, he has to go. The other controversial thing was Ederson's tackle on the box, and was it Odegaard? Um, yeah, yeah. Right. So that one is, you can look, there's a couple angles that have, you know, Ederson winning, getting the ball first. And then there's another angle that he hits the, the foot of Odegaard first, definitely. My issue is that the referee waved away both those penalty incidents the referee waved away both of them, but only one of them was reviewed by VAR. Only once did the VAR interject. Mm-hmm. Like, that's my problem there. Where's the consistency there? If you want to give a penalty for both, fine. I'm okay with that. I think, you know, soccer has lived in the gray areas, especially decisions like this. But I, And not to cop out on this, but I can see how both of them, uh, you could give it or you won't give it. I can see that. I totally can. But... What I can't understand is VAR staying out of the Odegaard incident. That's not good enough for me. Ederson and, and Odegaard should have been reviewed. The referee waved it away. So if, if anything, for me, it's a, it's a problem with VAR in these issues. Um, but I genuinely think the focus on Stuart Atwell and the referee has taken away from what was a brilliant Arsenal performance. And they only lost in the end, Andrew. They would have gone away with a point for an unlucky ricochet in the box, which fell kindly for Rodri. Mm-hmm. And he just pokes it home. And it was that, that if someone, if it had broken a different way, if the initial header where the balls floated in could have been won, if, if something could have happened with a second ball, then this game is 1-1 and it's a brilliant Arsenal performance. And like I said, Arsenal weren't hanging on uh, and City weren't like cutting them open. Um, I thought Arsenal were really good even when they went down to 10 men. But, you know, that focus is kind of, and a lot of it's from Arsenal fans themselves. I think they should take a lot from this performance. Obviously, no points, but they should take a lot from it. And they should also from what fo- I've seen, I mean, maybe we're looking at different things. 
from what I've seen, it, it did feel to me that Arsenal fans actually did walk away from this, despite the fact that they lost, they did walk away from this pleased and proud of their team. That was the impression that I got. Yeah, I saw I saw a lot of like, we, you know, we were robbed and it was, you know, the game reduced to solely moments of refereeing. When, oh, well. and, and I honestly didn't see enough about Martinelli's miss after Ake's clearance on the line. I mean, the goal is right open. Ake's in a, from what I can remember, pretty prone position. And he yeah, just needs he was to... basically, I mean, he slid in. Yeah, he just needs to slide it home. And he doesn't. He completely yeah. whiffs. And he had a brilliant game. He was excellent. Don't get me wrong. Um, I well, that, this... that is part of the story here is that every, everything that we're saying complimentary of Arsenal is true. But like, I, I do agree with the sentiment that like in, in simply stating that the referee robbed them, it is letting them off the hook for certain things that they were also culpable in. Like, right. you know, I talked about Granit Xhaka's penalty. Like, I do think you don't, you don't need to grab his shorts. Like, you don't need to dangle your leg in. Like, he didn't have to do those things to put the referee in a VAR world in a position to make that call. Uh, Gabrielle, okay, like, you're frustrated. You've gotten your yellow. You got your point across. But just two minutes later, to make a tackle like that, I know that there was some debate over whether that should have been, like Mark Clattenburg said, that was just a regular foul. That should not have been a second yellow. I don't know. An open field challenge like that, moments after you're giving the referee an earful, not surprised that he got a yellow for it. Didn't shock me. When it happened, I thought, uh-oh, he's gone. And that was my initial instinct. You mentioned Martinelli. I mean, so there were things in this game um, that you could look at and say, Arsenal, they, they could do better there. Now, I don't want, again, I don't mean for that to take away from their performance. Bukayo Saka, he's becoming a star right before our eyes. Like this is, you know, you're seeing it happen. Um, and, and, you know, a couple of weeks ago, JJ, I talked about Trent Alexander-Arnold, and I want to do this more. I feel like, not that it's a New Year's resolution, but, you know, oftentimes in this world, not just on this podcast, but in, in this field, a lot of what we harp on is negative. You know, who played poorly, what decisions were poor, what refereeing mm. decisions were bad. Like there's a lot of that. A couple of weeks ago, I, I talked about Trent and I said how brilliant he's been. And I just want to get that out there. I want to do that more. When I see somebody that just strikes me, I'm going to throw, I'm, I'm going to, I want you to remind me of this week in, week out. And for me, I'm starting to feel that way about Odegaard for Arsenal. The more I watch him, the more I think, boy, he is, he is a, a special player for them. Can we and, create a segment called Andrew's People? Yeah, sure. So it'll have really nice theme music, really happy, upbeat theme music, pictures of puppies, sunsets, you drinking coffee, uh, people walking down the street, you shaking hands, being convivial with common people. And we'll call it Andrew's people. What do you have to phrase it like that? Like, you know, every once in a while, I grace peasants with my uh, with my presence. Well, continue I'm a man of your, the people, con but continue, continue with your praise of Odegaard. But he's he's one of my people from watch. The more I watch him play, you know, he's a great passer. I think the way he just does things for Arsenal that I feel like they've been missing. Um, I think he could be the player that they had always kind of hoped Mesut Ozil would be for them, at least more consistently. Mm. And maybe Odegaard can be that. Um, I just like his game. Uh, so, I, you know, there there are certainly things there to feel good about. I am. Um... I read Jonathan Liu about Arsenal and he was at the game and it's just one of the best pieces I've written. And I dedicate this. If, if there's an, if there's Arsenal fans who haven't read this, they really should. Cause this is how you should be feeling after that game. Um, this is two paragraphs now because I have to link them together. He goes, 
And as Arsenal's exhausted players slowly winched their, themselves to their feet, the four sides of the ground rose to applaud them, a gesture of approval, pride, perhaps even defiance. To anyone who lived through the really bad years, who has seen this stadium at its most toxic and disenchanted, who has seen successive generations blanched and brutalised, this in itself was bracingly new. We can argue about how good this Arsenal side actually are, about whether their recent boost in form is any more sustainable than the ones that preceded it. But right now, there is a little halo of hope around this club, and it feels like the most fragile and the most important thing at once. That is just beautiful. And that's what it is. Guys like Martinelli, Sacco, Ramsdale, think of the response to his signing. You know, the general ripping of the hair out and kind of rending of garments amongst Arsenal supporters. These guys are giving this, this uh, as Jonathan puts it, halo of hope around the team. And hope is what you were left with after that game, that they could compete. And I, I, I hear Pep's protestations about, we could not do it, uh, you know, how tired they were, how fatigued they were. I, maybe that was a part of it. But you have not seen Arsenal stand up to Manchester City outside of the FA Cup in a league game, in a long, long time with this level of of guts and cojones. Really, really good and uh, and really good football too. Uh, a couple other quick observations that I had coming out of this. Um, first off, you know, sometimes we talk about penalties, the way they're taken. Riyad Mahrez knows how to take a penalty. That's a penalty. Except at Anfield when he skied <laughs> one there. That's true. But this one. This one, like this, that's what you do. None of this silliness, you know, he just steps up, smashes it top corner. Like that's all you got to do. Just that's it. Um, another observation. This isn't just Emil Smith Rowe, uh, Jack Grealish also who didn't play in this game. Um, or did he come? I'm trying to remember now. Grealish didn't go no, on. No. no. Um, I think I finally decided JJ. I don't think I like the low socks. Look, Oh, come on. It's I don't iconic. like it. I don't care. I don't like it. It's not for me. I wouldn't do it if I were a player. Uh, not a fan. Andrew, how it looks. the 1982 and 1978 World Cups would enrage you. I love Smith Rowe as a player. Uh, you know what I think of Grealish as a player? Um, just don't like the look. That's all. What, what is it specifically? Is I it don't know. Bit, I just don't it, care for it. Are you like a 19th century prude who didn't like to see ankle in the same way? That yeah, you that's like it. To, you don't yeah. like to see you don't like to see uh, calf. Is is that it? Yeah, it makes me uncomfortable. Do, do you think it's sloppy? No, I just don't like it. That's all. Hmm. Just a preference. And then finally, the other thing I wanted to say on Manchester City. And th- look, this doesn't necessarily apply to this match because even though they won, this wasn't you know this wasn't necessarily a performance to write home about for them. But just the idea of what we're coming out of in these couple weeks that they are like you just said, title holders elect that this is, this feels inevitable now, which is pretty remarkable because uh, I never thought I was going to be wrong on the fact that we were going to have a title race this year. I thought we were going to have one with three teams mm. um, and we we're not, <laughs> we're just simply not. Um, so I do want to say about city. Sometimes we just almost, I don't know if we're bored by their greatness, but we mm. just kind of write it off a little bit to that, a little people bit are to, bored. People are definitely bored. Yeah, there's a little bit of kind of just like city fatigue with how great they are, that it's, it's almost taken Joyless. for granted. 
Oh, look at all the, you know, yeah, they should, there's a lot of, oh, they should win. Look at how much money they spend. There's a lot of that. And by the way, a lot of that is justified. I understand that we see, you know, during the Yankees heyday, that was the feeling on them too. People got bored of them. Oh, it's just money. Yada. So I get it. Um, the one thing I will say about city though, uh, that I'm trying not to take for granted is that look, they've got great players at every position. There's no question about it, but I am, I am sometimes I catch myself being at least a little bit in awe that they can be this dominant in attack without really having a number nine for a couple of years now. Like they, and they've recognized that problem. Like there's a reason they wanted Harry Kane. Now they weren't willing to do what it took to get him and spend that kind of money. Cause clearly I guess they felt, okay, we we've won without him. We can continue doing that. We don't have to spend what Tottenham want, but that is impressive to me that, you know, some of that is players' willingness to buy in to different roles, and some of that is the genius of this manager. Like, okay, Gundawan did not go to Manchester City as a goal-scoring threat, but he he's become that out of necessity. They need guys to change roles and do different things for them. You know, they they play with guys in false nine positions that aren't necessarily accustomed to doing that, and they get the most out of them, and they score tons and tons of goals without since Aguero kind of fading away. Um, you know, Gabriel Jesus never really stepped up into being Aguero's natural replacement, and they've kind of figured it out along the way. Uh, so, yeah, they've got great players all over the place, and they, you know, it's no surprise that they're a great team. But to be, I'm sometimes a little bit surprised that they're this dominant uh, without having an elite player at that position. Yeah, I, I see what you're saying positionally, and I, I would tend to agree with that. But uh, there's no surprise for me in their, in their dominance anymore. Not really. That um, title races are over in December. It's like not. Liverpool are great. And by Chelsea the way, oh, are loaded. And by the way, over with a couple of draws or a win and a, a draw. Like it, it, it used not be like this, Andrew. Um, but unfortunately, that's the way it is now. And I don't know. We'll have to focus on something else. The race for fourth. Well, um, before we do that, JJ, because we will talk about the race for fourth, which right now Arsenal are leading. Um, but it's going to be tight. It's going to be tight. We'll talk about that. But the other big game of the weekend was Chelsea and Liverpool. They played out to a, a really entertaining 2-2 draw. It was probably the best, maybe the best half of the season. Uh, that first half was, it was, uh, it was a fun watch, certainly for neutrals. Um, I'm not sure, you know, in the end, neutrals loved this game. Manchester City fans probably loved this game. I don't, I don't think Chelsea and Liverpool, they kind of just like, this was sort of a case of mutually assured destruction. Like Liverpool looked like they were going to take this. It was 2-0. When Salah scores that goal, you kind of thought, oh, this this could actually get ugly um, with the form Chelsea were in coming in. Um, but Chelsea's, I give them credit. They fought back. They said, uh-uh, we're not going to, if we're not going to win this title, you're certainly not either. And they, they battled back and got at least a, a share of the points. Um, but it was a fun game, JJ. Uh, I don't know if, if you were able to see that in it as somebody who had a vested interest, but for the rest of us, at least, this was a fun game. No, I thought it was a great first half. I thought the second half, both sides just kind of looked at it and thought, I don't know. I mean, I mean Chelsea, Chelsea uh, Keller obviously made a great save from from Pulisic. Maybe Chelsea could have nicked it. Um, yeah, it was an excellent first half. A first half that will be up there for for anything we saw this season. I thought Chelsea were the better side in terms of their control of the game. And I thought we saw a better Chelsea than we've seen in a few weeks now, maybe even months uh, from Thomas Tuchel's side. And considering the, the lead into the game, 
that was interesting to me. There didn't seem to be a lack of morale on the field considering what was going on off the field. Yeah, I wonder if sometimes players are almost in some ways motivated by that sort of stuff. You're talking well, about Lukaku, I assume. We're talking about Lukaku and his comments to Sky Italia. And, um, you know, it was interesting because Tuchel made the decision that he would not be involved in the game. And according to The Athletic, Tuchel appears to have the backing of the squad for how he dealt with Lukaku. He decided to confer with five or six senior players before making a final decision to omit Lukaku from the Liverpool game. It is believed that Jorginho, Cesar Aspilicueta, N'Golo Kante and Antonio Rudiger were among those consulted. And they certainly played like a team that was in harmony with whatever uh, the boss's decision was. They must have been. And if they were, if they were a part of the decision-making process, I think Kovacic and N'Golo Kante were just excellent in midfield. Liverpool's midfield, the Henderson, Milner, Fabinho, uh, you know, central midfield unit didn't really work. I thought Chelsea fairly, rel- fairly dominant there, and um, and it was Liverpool's moments of brilliance that had them two 0 up. Uh, although it was well, a, some of that it was also it was a mistake. Chalaba's by, mistake. Chalaba's mistake obviously um, helped, but like the the second Liverpool goal was just was just brilliant from Salah. Was what a goal! I mean, come on, the way Absol- he the way he kind of I I don't know what else to call it other than a juke, I guess, or kind of he dips took a it shoulder stride to- and then kind of paused, then burned Alonso who can't recover, and then what he did to Mendy was even better, you know. Mendy has he had no idea which side he was going to go for. In the end, he, he kind of plumped for the wrong one. And it just just brilliant. Absolute brilliant. He does make the game look. I mean, he makes it look a little too easy. Like that he's, was a fantastic goal. And it just looked so simple. He's in the kind of form now where he's like comfortably the best player in the league. Mm-hmm. He's in that he's in that zone right now. And his consistency across the seasons has been has been excellent, absolutely excellent um, in terms of being involved in goals, scoring goals. But you have to say this season, it's gone up another notch. Oh, yeah. And uh, and he's always I mean, look, since he's come back to the Premier League and and linked up with Liverpool, he has immediately put himself in the, the top echelon of players. But I don't think he had ever separated himself from that group. He has now. He's different. He's different than everyone else in the league. We should go back to Lukaku, though, Andrew. Um, Yeah, let's go into this. Yeah. It's it's not a good look for Lukaku whatsoever. No, I thought it was terrible. Um, And the things he said, uh, again, I'm quoting from The Athletic here. uh, Conte leaving Inter was not a factor in his own decision to move. No, Lukaku said. The only reason was the extension, the extension to his contract that he couldn't get. I knew if that Simone Inzaghi were to become our coach, we would still have had a chance to win. So it wasn't because Conte left. I think if they had offered me a contract extension, you and me would not be talking in London right now, but in Milan. He's basically saying that the financial problems at Inter were the reason he ended up at Chelsea. By the way, correct me if I'm wrong. He had three years left on his current contract, did he not? He did not. Uh, I'm pretty sure he did. 2024. Yeah. He did not have to leave. He did not have to demand a new contract. No. But I suppose. I suppose what he's what he's saying is market forces 
have me in this position. Um, now, me and you, we text about Lukaku's behavior. And, and, and the thing we kind of said was that, you know, it's just a terrible, terrible way to act, especially so early. And it's, it's, it's hard to find sympathy. But that interview was supposed to be about him saying goodbye, a chance to say goodbye to the Inter fans who were upset at how quickly the departure happened and that there was no real send-off. And so if it's framed in that context, maybe the excuse. Well, well real quick, just to clarify, the Inter fans were mad about the way he left. He very wasn't upset about not having a proper send-off or anything. They were mad at the manner in which he left them. Yes. And so this was kind of a way to make recompense to here I am, sit down, interview with Sky Italia saying, I'm sorry about the way it ended and how much I love you. So if you put it in that context, maybe he's the words that he said three, four weeks ago, however it was, however long ago it was. Now, he just went too far in that Mm -hmm. in that feeling and that transmitted into into what he said. And now it just looks terrible. Well, he did it in a very clunky way. There Very had, funky. I'm not saying, I, I guess I haven't give it, given it quite enough thought to tell you how he could have said it to have, you know, praised Inter without denigrating Chelsea, but that's what he did. I mean, like he, he basically, you know, everything that came out of that interview screamed of, I wish I wasn't here right now. Yeah, absolutely. I'd much rather be back there. And it was at a point when he was not really starting in the team. I think he may have been coming back from an injury at that point as well. He was struggling a little bit. And so maybe that emotion plus reminiscing and being nostalgic about the great time and the career-saving time he had at Inter um, kind of coagulated and came together into this, like you said, clunky uh, interview. By the way, Inter supporters uh, responded to what they, they saw and they left a banner outside the San Siro, which said, it doesn't matter who won. I'm translating, obviously. It was in Italian. It doesn't matter who runs away in the rain. It counts who stays in the storm. Mm. Ciao, Romelu. Saucer of milk to Milan. What's interesting to me, the only reason that I, I can't help but wonder, okay, was this just a clunky way of trying to pay respect to his time with that club? Or does he have a problem with Chelsea? This feels like an easy fix if he wanted it to be like if he had come out in the wake of this and said, you know, and, and basically explained it and said, I was not trying. I love Chelsea. This is the club that I su- he was a Chelsea supporter as a kid, I believe. You know, this is the, the club that I support. This is where I want to be, um, you know, but I, I loved my time at Inter as well. But now I'm on to a new chapter. Like he could have come out. Chelsea PR could have put him out on a press conference stage and he could have righted this wrong easily. But, he, but and equally, it's been silence and he's been benched for a game. So he, what does equally, that tell you? There's a flip side to that coin, though. Tuchel could have continued to play it down and just call it noise. He didn't have to have him removed from the first team squad for the Liverpool game. You know, he's contributed to the escalation of this, too. Well, you know maybe, the way I Ma- mean, that, that could have been a meeting between Maria Granovskaya, Thomas Tuchel, and whoever else you wanted the room and Romelu Lukaku. It didn't, and that meeting apparently happened today. So we'll have to see what the result of that is. That's true. But it could have been, it could have been before uh, yesterday's game. It didn't. For me to. though, it's, it's almost, I mean, Tuchel's actions obviously represent a big part of, of how this played out. But for me, the more telling part of it are Lukaku's own teammates. And, it, and if they stood by this decision and if they pushed for this decision, 
as it seems like was the case. That's that says a lot to me because these guys are the ones who who get it. These guys, none of these guys are are native Chelsea players. They all came from somewhere else. Like they know, you know, they understand the finances of the sport and the business of the sport. So for them to think that Lukaku went too far, um, you know, I don't know what conversations they've had with him behind the scenes, but presumably some. And so like for, for them to still believe that Lukaku shouldn't play in Chelsea's biggest game of the season, that's, that says a lot. It does. You're right. And Antonio Rudiger being one of them, a guy who's been consistently linked with a move away from Chelsea because, because the contracts can't be figured out or, or whatever, whatever thing is going on there. Yeah. It's, I suppose we should talk more about the game though. Well, yeah. So quickly on, on the game itself, uh, just starting, we don't have to go deeply into it, but Sadio Mane, 20 seconds in red card, no red card. What do you think? Um, I think the referee got it right, but I thought it was, it was really bad from, from Mane. He got lucky in that it was early in the game. Anthony Taylor didn't want to send anyone that that's a factor. You got to say it is. It is a hundred percent. It is. And the second part is of his, um, his luck sandwich was that, uh, it was his forearm. So when VAR looked at it, they could see it was his arm. If that had been actually his elbow, he would have been gone. Now people will say to me, well, you're getting smashed with a forearm or smashed with a, uh, with your elbow. Well, an elbow is much worse, but I, look, if, I'm not going to argue that it could easily have been a red, easily. So yeah, it was lucky in that sense. The the I'm I find the the early match red card controversy fascinating. I really think it is a complete. It is the biggest lose lose situation that there is for referees in the sport because I can already hear what would have been said had that red card been handed out in the first minute of that game. That the referee, oh look what he's done. He's gone and taken this match. This is the biggest game of the weekend. This is a potential title decider, and he's gone 20 seconds in, and he, he's made it about him. That didn't need to be given. It could have been a yellow. That would have sent Mane the message. It wasn't brutal. It wasn't a studs-up challenge that could have broken a leg. And, and now but now we have Pearl clutching on the other side of it, where people are saying a red is a red. That's yeah. dangerous what he did there. You, can't, you know you can't do it, and, a, and it should be a red. So what is, he, what is this guy supposed to do? In the end, I think I'm comfortable with a match being – refereed a little bit differently in the first two minutes i don't well, want, I'll, i don't want a referee deciding one of the biggest games of the season in the first minute for something that's not a thousand percent clear to me yeah and also the fact that uh manny what was wasn't looking directly at as like that was another factor too he, you know he i'm sure he knew where he was he led with he led with his forearm for sure mm-hmm. it was um, close it was close it was, it was a close decision but and also don't forget we're in the era of let it flow andrew let mm-hmm. it flow so um there we are. Um maybe that can be our next song, JJ. Maybe we'll do it, like a um a Disney themed episode to the t- and we'll do Let It Flow to the tune of Frozen's Let It Go. I can already I can I can sense you writing lyrics already. Uh a couple other things with this um so we mentioned the two Liverpool goals to go up 2-0. Mm. I know what I was thinking when Salah scored. I mean, to me, because Chelsea had played fairly well. It was like, you know, they were throwing jab, 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 controlling a lot of possession. Uh, but then they got bit twice, one on the Chalaba mistake and one from Salah's brilliance. And it's just yeah. like Chelsea are throwing jabs, but all it takes is for Liverpool to throw two haymakers and that's it. Game over. Uh, I'm wondering if you kind of, I, I know it's tough to admit in the wake of the way the rest of it went down, but were you thinking... Well, there's three points for us. No, I wasn't, to be honest okay. with you. I, I, I was thinking, look, Liverpool aren't even playing that well. Chelsea have more rhythm and control, and yet we're winning. Uh, 
but I never felt that that game was over. And it, and it, it just wasn't. Now, I wonder, considering it was an absolute worldy, that an absolute, I mean, a bolt from the blue, you didn't expect it. Incredible. From, from Kovacic to get them back into it. If Chelsea don't score that, and then, you know, you get to half time at 2-0, you're feeling, you're feeling much more confident. Well, who uh, knows? But, I mean, yeah, it's tough to, does Pulisic but, still score? I don't know. When Kovic has scored that, uh, you know, you're like, ah, straight away. Straight you don't see away, too many that, that look like that, where he's actually, he's actually backpedaling. That's the thing. You see volleys like that regularly. You do not see someone have to adjust their body in that fashion and almost, on, you know, on one foot go backwards and then get such a clean contact and such force of contact. And then, of course, going in off the post, gives it that added je ne sais quoi it probably um, it probably won't i don't know if right now off the top of my head my goal of the season i'm not sure what it would be uh maybe salah's earlier man city against man city maybe yeah, that against but Watford. but i'll tell you what i'll tell you what though kovacic right now he's in the running for goal of the season and assist of the season yeah you you did love that assist from him i was a brilliant goal and it gets it's not that it got chelsea into the game they were already in the game if anything, they were, like I said, in terms of control of, of the match and possession, they were, Liverpool looked quite sloppy. They, they, Liverpool found it very hard to get the rhythm. Um, and then, of course, Pulisic scores. You lived out my nightmare. Yeah. That, that Christian Pulisic would do something really good and really consequential against my team. Yeah. You lived out the nightmare. Well, it was not going well for Pulisic up until that, I would say. Um Kelleher had made that save early on and made him look a bit foolish from a position where Pulisic absolutely should go around him and slot at home. Um, he, he got caught in possession a few times. The crowd was a little on his back and is impatient. If you actually watch the, the video back of where Kelleher takes the ball off his toe um, after the Trent Alexander-Arnold mistake, if you want to call it that, you know, you know the incident I'm talking of course. about. Um, look at the the uh, Chelsea fans behind the goal, how irate they are with that. And Pulisic hands to his head. It's a, it's a big thing. He was not comfortable in the game and the, the crowd was a little bit on his back, but he took his goal superbly well. Um, now, you can talk about Liverpool's defending, Virgil van Dijk, Kanate, the, the gap that opened up, whatever. But to control that on your right thigh and then take it on your left with a little punch over the top and find the angle against Kelleher. I thought that was absolutely brilliant um, from Pulisic. And he and needed it. So uh... I tweeted out from the account, uh, Pulisic right now in the zone where supporters remember a performance and it cements an opinion in their minds needs to pick it up here. Now that was at 2-0. So Chelsea are at 2-0 and the players are on his back. If they go in nil at half time or if Pulisic loses confidence and comes off after an hour, that is a performance that sticks in the mind, especially if Chelsea lose that game. And it would have been hard for, for the home support to, you know, because I don't think, apart from the goal in Real, against Real Madrid away, I don't think Christian Pulisic has had a define, like that defining moment for the club yet. You, you know, um, know the hat trick against Burnley, okay, I, fine. But that, yeah. big, that big, big moment that cements yourself. I mean, scoring in a Champions League final or semifinal against Real Madrid is certainly that's that's pretty big. I mean, I was kind of going through the catalog of of his biggest goals for Chelsea. 
um, scoring in an FA Cup final, um, the Champions League semifinal, and then I think I bet I think it's this. Yeah, I think this one is is right there. I think it is. I definitely think it is. Here um, is, by the way, what it sounded like on the USA Network. It's frantic out there, isn't it? Ball won by Rudiger again. Here's Conte, and the chance here for Christian Pulisic. Chelsea have packed Liverpool back in one of the finest halves of Premier League football you are ever likely to see. That one lifted the roof, Andrew. Yeah. Yes, it did. Um, and it felt like it was setting up for what was going to be a uh, a rollicking second half, but in the end it didn't. There were a couple chances. Um, you mentioned Pulisic had one. Mo Salah went for it. From about what forty yards out, but that was uh, a very good save from Mendy. Actually, yeah, backpedaling. Yeah, um, and so two-two is how it ends, and and in the end, like we said, they they share a point, and that is uh, it really helps. It's kind of a loss for both, and helps no one. Fun game, but uh, the result leaves both club uh, fan bases feeling empty. Yes, and I think I would imagine a lot of neutrals as well who would be looking forward to some kind of title race, or they're Perhaps. not going to get that. Don't don't look like it. A couple other thoughts, JJ, uh, from the weekend. Um, we mentioned the uh, the race for the top four now being the race. I mean, obviously there will be a relegation battle um, coming down the stretch in the season, as is always the case. But in, in terms of near the top of the table, looks like it's going to be top four um, that they'll uh, will be seeing battle out. Chelsea and Liverpool will not be a part of that race. They are, I'd say, pretty secure as your two and three in some order. Um, but Arsenal, Tottenham, who remain unbeaten under Antonio Conte, thanks to a dramatic win, kind of a rough watch for about 93 minutes or so. No, I won't, I won't have you say kind of a rough watch. A rough, okay. Take me to task. All right. Was, I apologized, you, America. Uh, yes, you and you should, because think of all the hungover people on sofas after New Year's Eve watching that absolute dreck. All right, it, relax. It was foul. It was disgusting. It was, it was like a double hangover having to watch that. Yeah, not a uh, not a great game. It's funny because it kind of got me thinking again about this topic that we keep coming back to of like, you know, finding like winning ugly versus playing really well but not converting chances. Like which which is better? I mean, ultimately, I guess if you're in a race, you know, if you're battling for something, which Tottenham are for for top four, I. I guess it's the the three points, you know, get you just survive, move on to the next one and and hope that that's not necessarily like a performance like that. Isn't necessarily a sign of, of a dip in form, which yeah. I don't really think is the case. I think Tottenham I think are trying one to of those do, games. Tottenham are trying to do two things at once, uh, you know, establish the style of play under Conte and still remain relevant in their race for the champions league. And I had some, a, I'm sorry, keep going. And sometimes that's difficult to do. I had a thought when I was watching this, the uh kill me now well kind of so the sixer fan in me was watching this and thinking about something and i wonder if this will make sense to you mainly in the first half jj what was pretty much the only thing that was happening constant long ball out to the right where emerson royal was standing by himself over and over and over and what could he do with it kind of nothing like how many crosses would he then play in that just were empty? Um, you know, right. the ball would come to him. He's alone. And it, it started. 
at first, like I didn't think much of it. And then it started to feel like I was watching the Ben Simmons experience where like how many Sixers games have I watched where Ben Simmons would catch the ball around the three point line and the defense would just disappear from view, drop off into the paint and be like, okay, yeah, do something. What are you going to do from there? I saw it a thousand times. Um, it felt like Watford were taking that approach with Emerson where it was like, okay, we're going to, we're going to focus on the other side here, worry about, you know, what can Reggion do from, from that side? We're going to, we're going to dare you to do something against us. And he couldn't time. And again, he couldn't, he's not, a, he's not bad. I, I think so far Emerson has been a decent signing for Spurs, but you know, fullbacks and wingbacks, they're so important and they're important in Antonio Conte's system. Uh, is he good enough for what yeah, he's so going to be asked to do? He, he certainly wasn't a Royale with cheese. Uh, thank you. In in that game. No, uh, yeah, it, it it wasn't working out for him. And I, my girlfriend, who was a Tottenham supporter, she, she was saying more or less the same thing. She, she just shouted out midway through the game, or we could keep doing that. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So yeah, I was trying not to watch it. I really was. I, I couldn't do it. And I, I think uh, that game will put even more pressure on uh, another Italian, <laughs> Claudio Ranieri, which is uh, which we just know how the, the ownership family of Watford act. Um, you, you sack a manager after a manager until you find a manager that wins. And um, Ranieri could be gone before uh, for Valentine's Day. That would feel a little harsh to me. But um, we know how they operate. One, so. thing, one thing developing with Watford, um, with the Africa Cup of Nations set to begin on January 9th, um, do play like they're not letting guys go. Now, mm. I know that there's been some controversy with um, the Nigerian squad of when they submitted their request for Emmanuel Dennis to join them. Um, and Watford are saying that it was late. The Nigerian Federation said that Watford were bearing fangs, I think was the quote, in terms of their approach for Dennis to be able to join them. And so they backed off. Uh, now it's happening with Ismail Yassar that Watford, I guess, are not letting him leave. He had been dealing with an injury. Um, well, Senegal's football authorities are accusing Watford of refusing to release him. Um, I, don't, I don't know. Um, there was a statement by the Senegal Football Federation secretary uh, that Al Jazeera, Al Jazeera are reporting. The English club Watford notified on the basis of spurious arguments its decision to block the player Ismail Yassar, who has expressed his desire to join the Senegalese selection for the Cup of Nations. The FSF, which is the Senegalese footballing governing body, responded immediately to confirm the player's call-up and the club's obligation to release the player by no later than January 3rd. So um, the, S the F he goes on to say the FSF wishes to express its deep condemnation of the disrespectful, pernicious and discriminatory, discriminatory behavior of Watford, who seek by all means to prevent a player from playing with his national team. So I don't know. Look, I don't know the <laughs> I don't know the proper procedure. All I know is what my gut tells me. And it to me just as purely as a fan looking at this as an outsider, it feels wrong. It feels wrong to me that you have players on your team that want to be a part of their national team for yeah. an Africa cup of nations. And you're not letting them do that. No, if they want to go, they should absolutely go. I mean, we can talk about the problem of playing in a country that is 
if not in plunging towards civil war. We can talk about those issues. We can talk about the timing of it, all those things. But if they want to go, this is when the tournament is. They should be let go. Absolutely. Uh, JJ, Manchester United played this afternoon. They were defeated by Wolves 1-0. As we talk more about teams competing for top four positions. And um, look, Wolves are quietly having a pretty good season. Uh, But if Manchester United are serious about getting into this, like forget the title race, obviously like something that I kind of thought they were going to be a part of, but that, that has come and gone months ago. Um, But top four, like you start losing home games to teams that you're, that you should be beating. uh, This could slip away from them as well. Well, before we hit uh, really deep into Manchester United, can I just say that uh, Bruno, uh, Bruno Lage, the manager, has done an excellent job because in terms of turning around what Wolves do, I'm not saying they're suddenly not a good defensive team or they're not, you know, but they pass the ball, they attack coherently. This wasn't a smash and grab. No. Um, John Muller of The Athletic tweeted this. At halftime, Andrew, Wolves lead in possession, pass accuracy, attacking third touches, penalty area touches, corners, shots, shots on target, and expected goals at Old Trafford. That is impressive. That is not to be treated lightly. Like I said, this was not a smash and grab. But Well, it speaks to both teams. I mean, JJ, I I was reading Rob Dawson today at ESPN FC afterwards, and he pointed this out. Wolves averaged 10 shots per game so far this season. That's their average. They had that today in 27 minutes. They finished with 19. They had eight corners. Again, like you said, at Old Trafford, a place yeah. that they have not won at since 1980 until today. Um, so, yeah, it, this isn't just a Manchester United issue. It's also that Wolves are, are good and they played well and give them credit for that. Uh, but, it, but yes, it is also partially a Manchester United issue. Can we hear from uh, Ralph Ranić? Of course. What did you make of the way you pressed this evening, particularly first half? I mean, we didn't press at all. We, we, we tried in, in the, in, after 10, 15 minutes, but um, we were not able to get into those pressing situations because, as I said, they did, they did that well. They, they had an overload in the center of midfield. And whenever we were trying to attack them in, in that areas, they played via their wingbacks. So, so how do you get <clears throat> to a situation <clears throat> where your team can press more effectively? I mean, this is the big issue. Uh, we've been only working now for two, two and a half, three weeks uh, with that break that we had uh, in, at Carrington uh, due to the, the fact that we needed to close the training centre. So we didn't have that much time to train on that and to put effort into, 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 into that. Um, as I said so far, we, we had the results and at, in times we played well. But today we have to admit uh, they were better than us. So Ranić basically saying there, the thing that I do best the thing that some people say i pioneered this team is not doing for me the godfather of denging pressing cannot get his side to press and that is not good andrew that is not a good sign whatsoever now will he be able to suddenly transform manchester united in its current iteration into the oppressing machine no it's going to take time it will probably take new personnel it probably won't involve Edinson Cavani and Cristiano Ronaldo. But the fact that they're not doing anything uh, close to what... Like, like I have to say today, they looked no different to how they'd looked 
they looked under Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. Mm-hmm. They just didn't. Um, and so it makes me think, like, you know, watching Ralph Ranick manage a side that doesn't press, like, what's that like? It's like, walk, like walking into a coffee shop, ordering coffee, only to be told that they don't serve any caffeinated products in here. Or like, you know, I was thinking of other godfathers and I just Googled godfather of, because if you look for Ralph Ranick, all you see is godfather of pressing. So I Googled godfather of and soul popped up James Brown. So I'm thinking going to a James Brown concert and he sits there and does like, you know, a Justin Bieber impression or something like that. You know, the exact opposite of, of what they're supposed to be. Yeah. And it wasn't just Ragnick saying this afterwards. It was also players. Uh, Luke Shaw sounded off um, about this performance. He talked to Sky Sports. He said, we have to put more pressure on them. We have to have intensity. I didn't think we were all there together. You look at the players we have, we have unbelievable quality, but sometimes quality is not enough. We need to bring the intensity and more motivation. I mean, he finished that interview by saying maybe the manager can come up with some. Now, this wasn't in, a, in a, an appointed way. He said maybe the manager has more ideas on how we can get better. That, to me, paraphrasing. That's essentially what he said. And, yeah, it's – I honestly think Rangnick is wasting his time with this crew, Andrew. I think he should be in his role as director of football, like – revamping all the things behind the scenes that need to be done at Manchester United, getting them back to the top of the pile in terms of recruitment, underage, a philosophy going right the way through, like building the club, doing what he's done mostly for the past 10 years. Like this, this guy isn't really a manager anymore. And um, he looked befuddled on the sideline talking to our very own Chris Armas, you know, (laughs) trying to figure out how to sort this out. They're, Yeah, like he did make the point that it it takes time to implement ideas and to do the work to create a pressing side. But um, yeah, it's the early signs are that that's not happened yet. And I guess we'll have to wait a bit longer before we know. But people are already talking about the fact that he won't get the job. He won't be made permanent manager in the summer if they don't make the Champions League. And what does that happen to his consultancy then? His two-year consultant. I don't think that evaporates unless he unless he asks out of it. Well, I mean, why would you consult with them if you know? Because he'll be setting the tone for the next manager that comes in. You know, why would you even bother then? Well, the way Ralph did it didn't work. No, I don't. Uh, yeah, fair enough. Um, Phil Jones, by the way. Yeah, wanted to mention that. Uh, Luke Shaw mentioned him too. Uh, pretty cool i think it was it was unfortunate it was his clearing header unfortunate not his fault that it fell to uh Jean moutinho who finished really well um but amazing for him to come back after two years and like i don't think there really is a, a professional footballer at a higher standard like right at the very top at a club like manchester united who's been more ridiculed you know he's been unfortunate because he's made faces kind of gurning faces in tackles and in moments. And they've been in the era of the meme and the gif. And so they've been sent around the world and then he's injured and he doesn't play a lot. So there's this sense that he's been a total failure and he's, and this all coincides with Manchester United's most difficult period in the past 30 years. 
And uh, I feel bad for him. I mean, he was way, way, way too hyped when he was signed um, for Manchester United from Blackburn Rovers. And, you know, I, I, it was just nice to see him out playing. And, and I, thought he did, I thought he did well tonight. He was shown love today. On, he had a, a header, a clearing header early, and the fans roared with it. Um, it had been 708 days since he played. I forgot he was a part of the team. Yeah. Well, no one had... The only reason I really thought about him in the last few months was Rio Ferdinand had a go at him, um, which he then apologized. On a podcast, he said, you know, Phil Jones shouldn't be at the club anymore. Like as if he was there just taking a wage. The guy was, he's been injured, Mm -hmm. you know? And he probably isn't good enough for Manchester United long-term or was good enough for them. But, you know. I mean, look, under normal circumstances, he's a rotational player. You know, it's going to be, you would think, Maguire and Varane. Yes. Um, and, uh, you know, in, in certain matches when guys are hurt or for fitness reasons or cup competitions that need to be rotated, you know, then guys like it's it's nice to have that in reserve. Um, but it's not like they're they're relying on him. So I think as a as a backup center half, you could probably do worse than Phil Jones. But good for him. Uh, that's that's not an easy thing to uh to spend two years on the sidelines and still remain motivated enough to get back and play high level first team football for a team so i I give him a lot of credit before we move on andrew uh number 18 was paul Scholes' number i have a picture of him here after scoring against barcelona in the 2008 champions league so number 18 and then he switched to 22 because 18 was taken by um ashley young when he made his little comeback after retiring so I just don't want you doing segments like that ever again. I'm sorry to have hurt you. Uh, two more quick ones. If we're going to talk top four, I, I don't have much to say on this, but uh, after going winless in five straight across all competitions, West Ham have sort of gotten things back on track, two straight wins. Uh, will they be players in this race, JJ, or are they going to – I don't know. I don't want to be disparaging, but if – it feels like it's going to be tough for them to keep pace um, with some of these clubs that they're around. Um, I think they will be Europa League spots. That's where they're going to be. I don't think they're going to be in the Champions League conversation. Uh, to be perfectly honest with you, I don't think they have the depth to do that. Uh, injuries will happen again. I think the last two performances, maybe not the Palace one, they won against Palace, but really I don't think they played that well. But the result against uh, Watford was very, very good. Um, so they'll, they'll be hovering in around, uh, those Europa league spots, but, um, no, I don't, I don't see them in the, in the Champions League conversation whatsoever. And then finally, uh, Everton's hole grows ever deeper. Their eighth loss out of their last 12 matches. Um, Calvert-Lewin came back and missed a penalty for them, uh, in this game. It's, uh, it's not, it's not good. And you start to wonder, how how much of this can Rafa sustain essentially before the dam breaks? Well, I I don't know. Um, you know, our friend Doug was in was in touch. I was actually playing soccer Sunday morning, so I, I didn't get to see this. I've only seen the highlights, but uh, he informed me of the ins and the outs of it. You know, Seamus Coleman at left back, Luca Dean uh, completely isolated, and looks like he's on his way out of the club in January. Um. For a, a falling out with Rafael Benitez, midfield, apart from young Gordon, who, you know, put in a, a good performance 
uh, Decore and Allen were totally, totally overran. Um, Brighton scored three goals on them. Brighton didn't win the XG in this game, apparently. Apparently, Everton won the XG, which is unbelievable when you think about it. Uh, Brighton scoring three away from home, just just magical. So we got to give them credit as well. And uh, Brighton's, I suppose, uh, Brighton's winner, uh, Alexis McAllister's second. What a goal that was. Unbelievable. Can we take a listen? Sure. Mopay still waiting in the centre. And it's gone to McAllister! What a strike! Alexis McAllister, his second goal of the game. And just as Brighton were on the ropes, McAllister pulls that one out of the bag. And Brighton regain control of Goodison. I mean, I know it. it's not going to get the headlines like uh, Kovacic's, but that was such, a, such an absolute belter of a strike. It was a brilliant, brilliant goal. And um, yeah, I I don't know what happens for Everton right now. They're kind of stuck, really. Like, what? Who can they get? If you're if you're Mashiri and the board, if you're Bill Kenwright, you know the fans are going to turn on if they haven't already turned on on Rafael Benitez. Who can they get in right now? Who's going to make a difference? The squad to me is just so all over the place. We talk talk about this all the time it's just it's a mess um it is i i sometimes wonder they're 15th right now um tied i mean with leeds united who are 16th um i mean i know that's low on the table they're not going to get relegated they're they're eight points clear of burnley and newcastle although we'll see you know newcastle are going to be busy i would think in january they've already put in a bid for kieran trippier uh, so we'll see what happens, but they're not going to get relegated. But but looking at Everton and where they are, you know, some of the clubs around them, you can say their squad, it's all over the place, but they should be better than this. I mean, like, you know, like, like I know, should, I should Brighton thing... be eight points ahead of Everton, yes. considering Everton have, you know, a Richarlison, a no, Decore, no, you're, you're a Luca Digne? No, that, that's looking at it the wrong way completely. Brighton are, are, whatever you think about Brighton, Brighton are a team that have been molded to play in a coherent pattern by, by one manager over the past two seasons, right? Two and a half seasons, however long Graham Potter's been in there. He's changed the way they've played. He's coached them. This is the team. This is the players they have. This is how they play, how they function. Everton have had X amount of manager. How many managers have they had in the last five, six years? All of them making, and they've spent a lot of money and all these managers have, it's like a, a big stew, a, a player stew, where one manager throws in one bit, one manager throws in another, and it's too many cooks have spoiled the broth. Because there's, there's no sense to that squad. And then they bring in a manager who is, and he's a, a legend at Liverpool for what he did in 2005 and 2006, and almost in 2008 and 2009. Rafael Benitez is, is a negative manager, a manager who really only knows one way to play, um, a yesterday's man of a manager. He doesn't, he doesn't adhere to kind of any of the modern styles of football. And when he's come up against teams that do, managers that play that a, a more modern style, he's been exposed regularly. Um, the Derby being one example and... Then this weekend against against Brighton, they're um, 
they're not the same thing. And I know what you're saying, you know, well, have Brighton any player as good as Richarlison? Or, I, I get that, but it's... I'm just, it's, I mean, look, I'm just throwing them out there. Like, they're 15th. There's, there's a lot of teams that player for player, uh, I feel like Everton have a more talented squad. But, but Brighton and Wolves right now are are four and three points respectively off Manchester United. And look at all the money they spent. So I don't know. Well, I'll tell you what, let's go ahead. Let's, let's take a break. We're going to come back on the other side. There's uh, some things that happened here domestically involving a couple of young Americans that need to be discussed. Also some comments coming out of Barcelona that were eye-opening uh, a surprising loss involving Real Madrid and a mailbag as well. So still a lot to do. Don't go anywhere. Back now on Caught offside, JJ, a couple uh, young American strikers are uh, moving abroad as Sunday wound up being a pretty eventful day for uh, for these guys. Daryl DK sold to West Brom, Ricardo Pepe sold to Augsburg, although I say Sunday that became official today. Yes, um, both are certainly notable. Uh, the Pepe one more so just for the price tag, uh, 20 million. Wow. Um, not saying he's not worthy of it, but it's just interesting to me because I feel like it's it's kind of another one of these, I don't know, is seminal moments too strong. I mean, this is MLS is a league that I think is still trying to develop its market, that's still trying to get Europe to trust it as a as a potential breeding ground for young talent. And so when you see something like that, it feels like a, a potentially pivotal moment. I mean, I go back to Alfonso Davies as kind of being, and I know there were ones before him, but you know, that, that felt like a major breakthrough moment in terms of Europe coming to MLS for young talent and his success at Bayern Munich has been so overwhelming and such a rip roaring success that I feel like it, it's paved the way for other clubs. Augsburg's not a big club for them to go out and spend 20 million on a young player from from an MLS squad, uh, I think it's an important moment for the league. Um, I'm, I'm not so sure how to read it yet. I would tend to err on the side of our friend uh, Michael Goodman, who tweeted today, not a big fan of relegation-threatened teams spending chunks of change on striker who's, strikers whose primary value comes from long-term development, to be honest. So my comments, JJ, are not pertaining to whether or not this was good for Augsburg. I'm right. talking about whether or not what this says about MLS and how it's perceived abroad. I, I, would, I would think that um, clubs aren't looking at MLS in, in, in the sense of they're looking at Dallas. Uh, they're looking at, obviously, they looked at Vancouver for Alfonso Davies. They're looking at New York. I think it's a player-by-player player, uh, basis in which they do that. And there are, there's good value usually to be found in MLS with young players so far. Now we have to see a lot of these players yet there. A lot of the players that have gone over are only in their Genesis stages. So we haven't seen them really emerge. Alfonso Davies will be the exception to that. Um, we are waiting um, on others to see exactly what their progression will be. And I, I think that's the point. Um, he, he comes in now under huge pressure to score goals in the Bundesliga um, immediately at that price tag. So it's not something they could, it's not a player they've bought in and they've said, all right, we can, we can develop him a little bit further. Even if we go down, we'll have a player, we'll take him under our wing. We'll, we'll fine tune him. He's coming in there at that price tag to immediately impact this team. And no, I, I, I think that, he, he's seen as part of the solution for them. 
that that's a big concern to me. And I hope that Augsburg know more than we do about Ricardo Pepe. Well, it could be a concern. It could also be a good thing. I mean, it essentially guarantees playing time, which it does, is, but- which is one of the biggest concerns we always have for young American players who go abroad. Will they get minutes? It do, yeah, but it's not will they get, you know, it's will they get minutes? It's not will they help a team survive? Well, the thing that I worry about that we saw, you know, we've seen this with Josh Sargent in terms of his development. Uh, you could even go back maybe to when Josie Altador was at Sunderland. Um, yeah, I sometimes worry about young American strikers going to clubs that are fending off relegation because, you know, and look, I have not been in front of my TV watching Augsburg week in, week out. I know they beat Bayern Munich earlier this season, which is at least encouraging. But, I've, you know, seen them, I've seen them once or twice, and they're, they, they love attacking. They leave themselves open, put it that way. So, you know, he might make a real impression, but it is pressure. It's huge pressure. Now, just with Daryl DK, he returns to the championship, to West Brom, and a manager and uh, Valerian Ishmael that he knows really well from his time at Barnsley. Uh, West Brom are fourth in the championship, but it's pretty tight in those promotion spots. So West Brom are going into this looking for a striker to help power them at least into the playoffs. That's a pressure of its own. And they need goal scoring help. I think they have only 31 goals in the championship altogether. Um, and their top scorer, scorer is uh, Carolyn Ahern Grant, who only has nine goals in the championship. And then next after that, I think it's Callum Robinson with six. So they don't have a striker who's in double figures yet. And it, it is super tight up there. They could drop out of the promotion places very easily. So again, that's pressure for DK to come in and kind of repeat the trick that he did at Barnsley. Yeah, which is why his signing is, is a good one, I think, for West Brom, because he's somebody who's proven he can score in that league, that he can be an effective striker there. The only thing I would say, the way it finished, his performances against Swansea in the playoffs were not good. He seemed, that he, he seemed to tail off quite a bit, and he didn't even start the second game of that, uh, of that push. So... I don't know. Is he there to augment the strike force or to actually come in and make and and uh, I suppose he'll, he'll be expected to score and chip in with his fair share, too. So, yeah, different kind of pressure uh, at the top of the table, but um, still pressure nonetheless. Uh, another note from MLS, LAFC have announced a new manager and it's U.S. soccer legend Steve Chirundolo. And when I saw this, JJ, I kind of thought of you because oh, he's that. Well, because we've spoken on this podcast when it comes to high profile jobs and I'm not saying LAFC are Manchester United, but in MLS LAFC have quickly become a, a, pro, a very prominent club. Um, you know, and, and I think of you because of comments you've made after Solskjaer got the job at United big club. Yeah. What is this guy's CV? Who does he think he is managing Manchester United? A little right. bit of, you know, Frank Lampard uh, getting the job at Chelsea and, so I thought of you because it seems like if that's sort of your line of thinking with manager appointees, then I would think you would, you would like this, that you would respect this move. Um, I'm reading here. It was Jeff Carlisle who wrote about this earlier today. He said, uh, Trundolo spent seven years getting experience at nearly all levels with Hanover's youth teams, Germany's under 15 team or assistant coaching roles with Hanover and uh, Stuttgart. Along the way, he procured the coveted UEFA pro license. And last season, he managed mm. LAFC's USL affiliate, the Las Vegas Lights. This guy has put in the work. Uh, he's done it at lower levels at every level, essentially. So good for him. 
I, I, you know, whether or not it works out, we'll see. But just on a personal level, this guy has done the things that I think sometimes you wish some of these other managers would do before they're just ushered into these really prominent roles. Yeah, I think if I was if I was nitpicking, I would have preferred if he he had one more job or one more season with Las Vegas. Because last season, six wins and 23 defeats from 32 games. Yeah, but I don't think that what Las Vegas were trying to do, this is going to sound weird. I don't think they were, I don't know that they were trying to win. I think Mm. that, I think that team and that position, I was just reading up on this a little bit. I think it was much more about player development uh, with that squad than it necessarily was wins and losses. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, it looks ugly on paper, but I don't, I I think LAFC, they would know, right? I mean, it, it was like their feeder club. Uh, so like they would, they would know what was going on there. And if they were, if that team was but, bad because of poor, poor leadership. At yeah. That and, that, that, and that's my only, my only thing is that's his only senior management position. Like he's been an assistant everywhere else, or he's been a manager at the U 70s at Hanover, or the Hanover youth manager, assistant manager with the seconds for Hanover. So yeah, um, look, I, I did in terms of like the coaching journey and in terms of, pro license and co- what's it like, I suppose, earning your corn. He's done all of that. So I can't argue with that, but um, this is a, several steps up to what he's been doing so far. You're a difficult man to please. Has anyone ever told you that? I've said it. Yeah. I've said you it. just said it there. Yeah. Uh, let's move from MLS. A couple quick things in La Liga. Um, <laughs> JJ, apparently Barcelona are back. This has now been decided for all of us. Yes. Um, uh, uh, you, uh, Juan Laporta has said, uh, we still have our status in the transfer market. Everyone can get ready because Barca are back. The arrival of Ferran shows that. We're a reference. Barca's resurgence is a reality, and the football world has realized that. Uh, meanwhile, they're not even able to register Ferran Torres as a player on their squad yet. No. Uh, and they may not be able to until they're able to get Usman Dembele signed to a long-term contract, which is up is up in the air right now yeah uh so so i don't know if this is if laporta saying this um back streets back like is this an example of a guy like i i can see people getting caught up in the excitement of like of a press conference um so maybe very excited maybe (laughs) but like this is supposed this is a good day for barcelona they got this player that they feel good about so he's excited and you know uh, he he came out and he said this in the heat of excitement, or maybe he's just like trying to speak it into existence. I mean, JJ, they're talking about, uh, he wouldn't comment on this, but like the rumor essentially is that like, they want to be players for Erling Holland. He's going to, Holland's going to break, like he's going to be one of the most expensive transfers in history. There is going to be a lot of bank loans in their future. If that's like, the what, case, what are they doing? Like, who do they think they are right now? Yeah. I mean, this, look, we'll this, see. You're a big uh, Arrested Development fan, right? Love it. One of my yeah, all-time so favorites. It reminds me when, like, the Bluth family have no money. And Lucille Bluth can't accept that. And she has this line. I can't remember what season it's in, but <laughs> she goes, I, for one, will not go back to wondering whether there's going to be enough food on the table. You know, like, this is a denial, you know, it's like, it's like what you said about speaking it into existence. Just deny the reality of what's around you and just plow ahead. Pretend it's not happening. 
I mean, is this not the same guy who basically wanted Messi to play for free? So I don't know what to believe. ESPN FC wrote this about it. They said, "Uh, Laporta's optimism over the transfer market contrasts with the situation at camp now. The club's gross debt stands at over 1 billion euros, and their La Liga-imposed spending limit for the season is just 97 million euros. They can only spend 25% of anything they save. Barca's back. Oh, yeah. Like, I don't know. Look, I I like Barcelona. You know, the Champions League, La Liga, it's fun when they're good. Uh, It's interesting. Um, but like, and, and by the way, I've said that I think they can be good. Like I, I like their squad. Um, they have young players that I think Barcelona fans should feel really good about their manager. I'm, I'm interested to see where it goes, but I mean, this talk about Erling Holland and, and Barca being back after a Ferran Torres signing again, fine player, but like to be, to, for Barca to be back, they got to be like the standard for them is champions league final, you know, Champions League favorite, like that's the standard for Barcelona. Like, slow down. Like, he's putting like, I would think Xavi, who's there now as their manager, like he must have heard that and been like, dude, stop. Like, do you understand the pressure you're putting on me right now by saying we're back and this is my squad? Like, easy. But uh, there, there's also a danger if he's to realize the things that he said, which he seems like the kind of guy. Well, I've said that now. I got to follow through. It would debt them into destruction. They would no longer be like socio-owned. They'd be owned by a conglomerate of banks from which they've taken loans from. It's That's like the, the episode of The Office, JJ, when um, Dunder Mifflin has gone bankrupt. And so Michael Scott is brought to the shareholders meeting um, as like a beacon of hope for the company, which by the way, in itself is a horrifying notion that like, this is who they're, they're pointing to is like why this company can, can succeed. And he's brought up on stage. Oh, this guy has done wonderful things with our Scranton branch. Uh, th- let's hear it for Michael. And then he just takes the mic and he's like, look, I know you're all angry, but we've got a plan. We're going to go back. We're going to figure it out. We're going to come out. We're going to tell you the plan and we're going to win because we're Dunder Mifflin and everybody's going crazy. And then he goes back and he's like, all right, so what's the plan? And they all look at him and say, you idiot. There's no plan. <laughs> We're ruined here. What are you talking about? Like it felt like it feels a little bit like that. Like Laporte is just excited. All right, we're back. We're gonna sign Holland. Here we go, Barca Champions League again. And it's like then he leaves the stage, and everybody's like, "Dude, what? Where is this coming from?" I don't know. Uh, staying in La Liga, um, Real Madrid. It's funny, JJ. I had kind of we we hadn't talked a ton about Real Madrid, and I had sort of earmarked this episode as one is where I I wanted to give them some real props because they were coming out of a year in 2021 where somewhat quietly they lost two league games the whole year the fewest of any side in Europe's top five leagues Mm. that like did that not feel like it happened pretty quietly Um, so I was all ready to be like look Benzema is a is a stud that does not get the recognition that he deserves Vinicius has emerged this team is ridiculous and probably should be put on a, on a higher level than whatever we seem to view them as like we we kind of it's not that we don't think they're really good they certainly are we know they're going to they're going to waltz to the title in la liga this year but when we go through our champions league favorites i feel like we have them on a a, a lower tier not with the bayern munichs manchester cities maybe even and liverpool i feel like real madrid we kind of have on the tier below that maybe mm-hmm. we shouldn't uh, and then go figure the episode that i was planning on saying all this, they go out and they lose one nil to Getafe. Um, again, it doesn't mean anything. Their lead atop the, the table in La Liga is, is they're basically unreachable, um, but it's still a noteworthy defeat for them to lose a game like that. 
Um, Ancelotti said, we reacted well for 10 minutes after the goal, then became nervous. We lost balls and battles. That's not a lot to say about the game. We stayed on holidays for an extra day. We weren't the same team that ended the year. We were less focused, less committed. A draw would have been fair because we didn't deserve to lose, but we gifted a goal and we lost. It could be a wake-up call. We seemed like we were still on holiday. So there you go. That's what Carlo thinks. Yeah. Um, so I'll save my uh, my coronation of them uh, maybe for a different episode. Um, JJ, you have a mailbag, I believe. Caughtoffsidepod at gmail.com is the email. Caughtoffside ESPN on Instagram. Go follow us there. Caughtoffside on Twitter is at COSoccerPod. Follow us there, please. Everyone go and do that. Thank you for the reviews that have been left, most of them kind. And uh, most of them kind. A few people getting uh, getting a few shots in. Uh, one guy in particular had stuck with me, and he's probably right. He was saying how we talk about kind of the injustice in football in terms of finances and everything, but then we we waffle on about the Premier League all the time. And then he lumped us in with The Guardian and ESPN and NBC and everybody else. And uh, we don't realize that we're part of the problem. Morons. And I kind of agree with him in a way. But he, he said <laughs> more Collective- like it feels like i don't know was that necessary like he probably could no, it wasn't it, he, could, he could have made his point without morons but he i think he was looking for something punchy to get out on you know yeah let me just be a total d that'll get their attention <laughs> yeah um i want to start with something quickly because we were talking about tv and i think this christmas the holidays and uh and on until march april when the weather gets good is is really great tv watching time Andrew, have you watched on Disney Plus the Beatles documentary, Get Back? No. I'm, I'm in the middle of it. It's, uh, it's quite long. Each episode is about, it's between two hours 15 and two hours 45. There's one close to three hours. Hmm. Um, but it's fascinating. Uh, it's Peter Jackson again, who did um, uh, They Shall Not Grow Old, which is one of our, our favorite war uh, documentary films. Um, it's really, really interesting. And the dynamic uh, between you know Lennon, McCarthy, and George Harrison, who I didn't realize was quite such a sensitive Sally. I all we were we are we're always framed that it's a Lennon and McCarthy driven split. I believe it's McCartney. Sorry, it's McCarthy. A common mistake called? made by literally no one. But continue, Mick, Mick McCarthy, um, Lennon and McCartney, and and kind of the the dynamic between the two and it was always that there was tension between them and ultimately that's why the Beatles broke up but Harrison was a major part of that hmm. and the tension between him and McCartney was was huge too and it reminded me a little bit of me and you 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 being Harrison mm-hmm. me being McCartney and like McCartney is the driving force in terms of like he, he, he wants to do this. He wants to do that. He said, we should do it this way. We should do it that way. He can be quite overbearing. That's me. And whereas you are kind of slightly more <laughs> passive aggressive, you mm-hmm. know, not that you're not talented. You're hugely talented, but you kind of, I don't know. You just get sick of the other person. Oh, that's a horrible thing to say. I think that I've only gotten sick of you on a handful of occasions, but no more. Handful. <laughs> That's not that many, I guess, considering how long we've been doing this. No, the only times I've ever gotten sick of you, um, let me think, definitely during the, there were definitely podcasts during the Mourinho Spurs era where I was just like, I I don't know how much more of this I can do. Um, I was McCartney, yeah. Yeah, and I was sensitive George. No, I have not watched that. I I was far too busy knee deep in MacGruber on, uh, on Peacock. 
so you can have your Beatles. I'll I'll stick with MacGruber. Okay. Loved it, by the way. The movie, for those who haven't seen it, it's one of the comedy gems of our time, and not enough people know it. Right. I'm going to watch it finally, because I've never watched it. The movie is sensational. And the show, if you like the movie, you'll, you'll like the show. Okay. Big uh, MacGruber supporter. Bradley in Tennessee kicks us off here. After the passing of John Madden, can you guys think of a singular figure in soccer who was so linked with the sport across so many facets of oh, it? What a question. Uh, I, I, the short answer for me is no. No. Um, no, not universally known across. I guess soccer is so broad. And the there's a lot football. of guys who, who can hit, who can tick two of the boxes. Right. But it's Madden's third. It's his, it's the video game variable that make that that takes him to a level that is really difficult for anyone to replicate like you know look i see and, and it's by the way it's not just that he ticks three boxes it's that he was he was one of he retired very young as a coach but as, as a young man he won a super bowl so he's he's an all-time great as a coach he is you talk to most football fans the greatest nfl broadcaster of all time color commentator yeah. of all time and his video game is probably is definitely the most successful sports video game in American history. So like he was high level elite at three different facets of football culture. Yeah. Um, there's guys like Gary Lineker, I think ticks two high level elite player, sensational broadcaster, but like what he doesn't have the third, you know, there's a lot of guys like that. Um, it's the third one that, that makes Madden different. I agree with you. And I, and like even Gary Lineker, like, how much would he really outside of Argentina where he would be well known? Like, would he really, you see Madden because of the insular nature of the NFL, especially at the time when he began, it was very much an American thing. So he traversed the country where soccer is multiple countries. So it's, it's hard to, there is no singular figure in soccer. And, and, and like you said, in the three areas, I mean, there, there have been many, successful players who became broadcasters but there's never been anyone like madden comparable to madden in world soccer there just isn't i just try to think of okay how had like certain figures have they touched multiple generations or multiple facets of culture like I, you might roll your eyes but like could Beckham get close? Like as a player, he was brilliant. So he's got, you know, the foot, the common fan is in on Beckham as mm. a fashion icon. Like he's got that, mm. you know, he's come to America. He's, he owns a team uh, like, but yeah, that, that falls a little short, but he's not, he's not charismatic as a, as an actual person to listen to or to, to hear talk. And you would never want him on any broadcast All right. or anything. He's easy. So, um, and his fashion icon status, I would say has dwindled somewhat, somewhat. I don't think like in the nineties, definitely late nineties, early two thousands, what Beckham wore mattered in terms of influencing styles. I don't think that's the case now. So, but maybe, yeah, maybe, maybe he's, I don't the know. One. It's tough. I'm thinking here. All right. Try. Um, Justin, I'm so fascinated by the Derby County story. They, continue to pick up points in dramatic fashion, albeit facing what was supposed to be certain relegation. Although I'm not a Wayne Rooney fan, I am rooting for them to stay up. I would agree with that, Justin. Just a quick resume of the nightmare that is Derby County right now. They sit bottom of the championship. 
and they were docked points in September, 12 points immediately they were docked because of uh, when you go, when a team goes into administration, uh, that's what happens. Uh, you're docked points. And um, after that, uh, the club basically in serious financial difficulty, that's what administration means. Um, they were docked a further nine points. So that's 21 points. They were docked nine points in November for financial uh, breaches of the EFL's financial rules. So that's 21 points. Uh, they find themselves now, albeit bottom, in a positive, not a minus point situation with 11 points. They are only three points behind Barnsley in 23rd, uh, although they are eight points off Peterborough in 22nd. Reading uh, are on 22 points, are the furthest away from them on 11 points. They have won three out of their last five games, including a draw today. They were 2-0 down entering the 86th minute. And uh, Colin Kazim Richards got one back. And uh, then they had an equalizer, which got them a point. Um, this story is unbelievable. Wayne Rooney won't, won't quit, is going to go down with this ship, is going to remain. Um, it's, it's, it's an unbelievable story, Andrew. I don't know if they can pull this off, but if they can, it's one of the biggest we need the, the full Netflix on this. I hope there's cameras in there for this. You said there are 11 points. Yeah. For safety. Mm. I mean, I, I think about, okay, how would we perceive, um, you know, a Premier league side who was 18th right now, that was 11 points shy of 17. We'd think, eh, I don't, I don't think it's going to happen. Um, but they're also not a normal relegation team. Like they're there not because of poor performance. They're there because of financial problems. So maybe they're good enough to overcompensate that kind of uh, deficit. But I don't know. That feel that eleven points feels like a gap that is just uh, a little too wide to to bridge. Now Reading had points deducted themselves, um, so they uh, they sit just uh, three points above Peterborough United. Um, I would love if 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 Rooney could do this. I think uh, I think it'd be something special. But again, it's, uh, it's, it's another club who went all out to get to the Premier League, hired Frank Lampard, made him one of the best managers, if not the best ma paid manager in the championship, two million a year, spent the money, Andrew. And um, now they're reaping the, the ill winds of, um, of the way they've managed their finances. And I don't know, just the romantic in me would love if they could stay up. It'd be, it would be amazing. And um, I'm rooting for Wayne Rooney, which is... Not something I've said many times. Jeff contacts us. Hi, fellas. I notice in Premier League games, some fans get nasty in a way I haven't noticed in an MLS. You see it on screen during corners with lots of guys yelling, pointing, cursing, etc. I get rooting for your team and trying to throw the other team off, but it goes to a level of vehemence that I find obnoxious. What's your take? Am I right that fan culture stateside is different? Thanks for being a constant companion to my soccer experience, Jeff. Um, thanks, Jeff. I would just say, Jeff, that, um, and I'm not accusing you of being on your high horse, but you might be a little bit on your high horse when you say, I haven't noticed this behavior in MLS when we're just finished an MLS Cup final where an NYCFC player got whacked in the head with a beer can Good point. over by the sideline. So um, now I, I, I do think that there is a difference in, in the supporters 
um, in England, like when someone goes to take a corner, you can see the opposition fans berating them. Um, th- there is a performance aspect to, to being a supporter. From the very first soccer game I ever went to, you could feel it, that you there are certain things that as a, a home supporter or an away supporter you're supposed to do. And um, shouting abuse and roaring at the, at the guy who's taking the corner is part of it. Now, obviously, we wouldn't condone any homophobic or racial abuse or anything like that. But, you know, it's kind of part and parcel of it. Yeah. Uh, Look, am I am I wrong to say that, you know, that an MLS game might bring out a different kind of fan? That's correct. Premier League game. I mean, MLS, it just feels a little bit more like a family going experience, whereas the Premier League is not necessarily that. Also, I think the people who are often behind the goal are your hardcore supporters often. And uh, and they very much feel like they are part and parcel of what's going on on the field. And th- the fans you would get in the center of the stand are more likely to be uh, your day trippers, maybe some of your your foreign supporters coming in, particularly in the Premier League. You don't see it so much then when you're go- when they're going to get the ball for a throw in, but you do see it behind the goals. And as Andrew points out, the supporter profile is different. Like I would say most MLS teams have a small, hardcore support. I mean, I'm talking about the guys, the sons of Ben, the South Ward, the guys who go behind the stand and light flares and take it deadly serious. And the rest are made up of people who are going to the game as opposed to being a part of the game. If that makes sense. Yeah, I get what you're saying. Yeah. Uh, uh, By the way, again, abuse. it, It can take you know, the vehemence you're talking about, obnoxiousness. It can take different different forms as long as it's it doesn't veer into the, like I said, the racist or the homophobic or, or anything like that. Um, I, I've kind of grown up watching it and seeing it and it doesn't really, yeah, it doesn't really affect me. I don't, I don't have a problem with it. You're a hardened soul. No, you are too. Jesus, you support the Philadelphia Eagles. Mm-hmm. With pride. Can you imagine what those... I'm still support- beaming. You didn't comment on my sweatshirt. I didn't. I couldn't see it under that oh, cardigan. It's an Eagles sweatshirt. Yeah. It's an Eagles sweatshirt. I'm, I'm beaming with pride. Jalen Hurts was nearly Hurts at the weekend. Has Daniel Snyder just given up on, on keeping that stadium in like any kind of... Uh... By the way, the lack of, of any concern about the photographer that got his leg... He was the, thankfully, he was the only one under the barrier. I say, thankfully, it wasn't the whole of him. And this barrier falls down and just smashes his leg. And Jalen it Hurts looks is, like he then kicked one of the fans. Anyway, <laughs> I don't know. The whole thing was kind of jarring. Yeah, but anyway, getting back they, to but it. But unfortunately, like, everybody was, seemed like they were fine. Like the idea of the, that culture in America. I've heard horror stories about going to Eagles games. The abuse that uh, traveling supporters get, other players get. Like, serious so i don't know i'm again jeff i'm not accusing you of being on your on your on your high horse but you might be about to mount it there with that one Uh, well there you go uh that's it for the mailbag that's it for this podcast it's actually an interesting week uh you got carabao cup first leg semifinals, and it's uh, a couple pretty high profile matches chelsea and tottenham on wednesday uh, arsenal and liverpool 
on Thursday, uh, first leg. We talk about the busy fixture schedule. That's a tournament where – do we need two legs for the semifinals? I don't know. We'll save that for another podcast at any rate. And then I this weekend, believe- it's uh, it's an FA Cup weekend. Yes, I don't believe that we do need two legs. But no. um, if people want to tune in on Friday, Andrew, we will be doing a Twitter space on Friday. Oh, Yes. So um, certainly news to me. Yeah. So at CEO soccer pod, if you want to join in, talk, what time is this? Um, I was going to say on Friday. Well, let me, let me think. So the Carabao cup games are on Thursday, right? Wednesday and Thursday, one each day. Oh, yeah, Maybe we'll do it Thursday then. Maybe we'll do it after Liverpool and Arsenal. So when mm-hmm. at the, at the end of the Liverpool Arsenal game, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll have a little conversation. Hopefully most people will be, back from work or they'll be in a situation where they can join in. So Thursday. Yeah. That makes more sense. Thursday, January 13th, Twitter space at CO soccer pod. I will be doing it once again, because there's just no chance. Andrew will join in. He finds you you repulsive. All of you. He doesn't want to even think about you, let alone speak to you. Send me the info. And if I'm not working or putting my children to bed, my, my son, Jack lost his first, first tooth today. No one cares. Can we talk about the Twitter space? That'll do it for this edition of <laughs> no, 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 don't no, like it's that. all over. We have to no, end no, no. on a negative note. No, no, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to say who cares. Uh, was he okay? Was he traumatized by he it? He didn't actually didn't even know it fell out. We didn't notice until he got home. It's somewhere he, in his school right now. Yeah, he's as, he's as unfeeling and as unnoticing as his father. Wonderful. <laughs> uh, this was fun. We'll be back with another one, of course, next week. JJ, to you, I say. Check it later, fun boy. I'll see you. Take care, man. You've been listening to the Caught Offside Soccer Podcast. 